What you just heard was not your broken podcast app. It was the sound of wind on Mars, recorded by the Mars rover Perseverance. On July 30th, 2021, Perseverance left planet Earth, starting its seven-month journey to Mars. Perseverance is equipped with the most advanced technologies to explore the red planet, including a device called MOXIE, which is testing the extraction of oxygen out of the thin Mars atmosphere. And with that, the first additive manufacturing parts have made it beyond Earth's orbit onto Mars. Welcome to Additive Snack, the podcast dedicated to enhancing your additive manufacturing journey. I'm Fabian Alefeld, a member of EOS's award-winning consulting, engineering, and education team called Additive Minds. And I'm your host. In this new mini-series of Additive Snack, we're focusing on space, on the AM space race to be specific. The public fascination with space travel really kicked off in 1961, after Yuri Gagarin's first human spaceflight. What followed was a decade of incredible innovation and technological acceleration that culminated with a man on the moon in 1969. Over the next 50 years, the space industry continued to make massive strides in exploration and technological advancements. But it very much fell out of public interest. That is, until SpaceX became the first private company to in the end launch a successful human spaceflight, thrusting space back into the public consciousness. Now, there are literally thousands of private organizations with an interest in the space industry, prompting a new space race. This has been fueled in no small part by amazing technological developments in and outside the industry. We're going to use this series of additive snack to explore what the new space race industry looks like, how it got there, and what role additive manufacturing has and continues to play. In this first episode on space, I'll be joined by Paul Gradle, principal engineer at NASA and one of the most trusted sources of additive manufacturing knowledge in the space industry and beyond. Paul, thank you so much for being on Additive Snack. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to chat about Additive and uh, geek out on the technology. Yeah, same here, same here. And I'm super excited to have you on the show because you have such a broad experience, not only on Additive, but also, of course, on the space industry and therefore the perfect introduction into our space series. And yeah, very recently, you actually also got awarded a award for engineer of the year by the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, which, uh, yeah, also congratulations from my side. I think that's a, that's a great honor. And I'm, I'm very curious to, to hear what brought you into the space industry and into the additive manufacturing industry. So what was your journey like? Yeah, well, first, thank you. You know, I'm very honored. And in aerospace, you know, there's a lot of people involved. So by no means, you know, can we take credit for any individual things. So surrounded by an amazing team, um, you know, really throughout my whole career, um, have had a lot of great mentors um, throughout my career. But I think at a very young age, you know, I was fascinated by space, I think as a lot of us are, uh, grew up in mm -hmm. the shuttle days, watching the shuttle launches. You know, I remember the 
Challenger disaster very vividly as a kid. And, you know, as I grew up and, and became a teenager, you know, I didn't, wasn't necessarily targeting NASA. I knew that I wanted to mm-hmm. be in the technical field. Uh, I just liked the mechanical things. And during college, you know, I got more and more interested in, in NASA and what it does and the mission, you know, all the different aspects of it from space exploration to International Space Station, the science side of it. And certainly it's just something that inspires everybody. And I still have that same feeling today. But I did an internship up at NASA Glenn Research Center and was involved in one of the uh, the racks that are on the space station where we're doing some fundamental science uh, up there. And I think having that small piece of our space program, you know, really just inspired me to move forward uh, in that. So a couple of years after that internship, um, I got a job down at NASA Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama. And for me, Mm -hmm. it was the perfect role because I'm doing liquid rocket engines, but I'm doing a lot of manufacturing of it. So I've always, like I said, I've always had this technical sense and wanted to be, you know, in that field. But I think more specifically, manufacturing is something that's always excited me. I grew up in a machine shop where I did some internships and, you know, right, right through high school and doing CAD drawing and stuff. And being around that was just always cool. Now we were making plastic injection molds, which is totally different from space hardware, but just being able to create something and being involved in that, you know, you take a lot of pride in that. So where I'm at now, you know, being space industry, we build rocket engines, we test rocket engines. And, uh, you know, it's, it, every day is a thrill. Um, And to me, it's probably more of a, a hobby than a job uh, itself. I think we're all excited about what we do, inspired by what we do, and really hope to inspire others in in space as well. Yeah, I can already tell you that you are inspiring others uh, every day. And I think, you know, having you as part of not only the additive industry, but the space industry, uh, I think has a very great impact on how we, how we advance those technologies. And I'm very curious to understand now, because you've been at NASA really at, from the beginning of your career and you've seen the the space industry develop. You've seen private companies all of a sudden also entering the space and, and developing the, the industry together with you at, at NASA. What was the first time that additive and space really collided and started their joint journey together? Right. So I was exposed to additive when I was actually at NASA Glenn Research Center. And we had several plastic printers there that we used for prototypes. And I think that was always, everybody's on the same page, right? We, we use these printers for prototypes. And when mm-hmm. I moved down to Marshall, we had the same type of lab. And I was used to making these plastic parts that we could get our hands on, that we were designing, and eventually we're going to go make them in metal. And I remember, uh, it was probably about a year or so, I was at Marshall, and they called me up and said, we just bought a metal printer and my <laughs> eyes just lit up. Cool. I can go make things out of metal. You know, and of course we're still thinking prototypes. So we yeah. designed this small part 
and sent this down to the lab. And a couple of days later, they call me and they say, your part's done. So I drive down to the lab and I'm so excited. I walk in the lab and I see my part sitting on the table and pick this thing up and holding it in my hands and looking at it and thinking, oh, wow, this, this thing looks awful. <laughs> you know, the early days of metal, uh, we're just not quite there. So we're still thinking, okay, this is, it's cool. It's out of metal. You know, it's a prototype, but mm -hmm. we really saw the vision for where this could go. Now, at the time, the technology was not there. Your, your lasers could only stay on for a few hours or a couple of days. We couldn't do these long builds, you know, a lot of crashes mm -hmm. and, and you just really couldn't sustain uh, the builds. But we saw the potential in this. So it's really incredible to look back 20 years now and think, we're flying metal additive parts. There's this whole space industry that is really accelerating because of additive manufacturing, because it's making it accessible to companies and university rocket teams that didn't have this technology before to make rocket engines. So stepping back somewhere between there, it was probably about 2010 when we started working more with the laser powder bed fusion process. Uh, we made mm -hmm. some sample parts and we actually made this duct. It was a 180 degree duct that fit on one of our engines, a J2X engine that we were working at the time under the Ares program. And we hot fire tested this duct. So we put it in the actual environment with hot gas and the loads on it in a component test. And it performed really well. And even though it was a simple duct, I think everybody looked at that and said, oh, wow, this is real. We can go print these parts and we can put them in the actual environment. And I think from there is where it really accelerated. We started to make more complex parts for rocket engines. Uh, we started getting mm -hmm. interest from industry on it. And then it was about the 2015 timeframe when things really started to take off. There was more companies that were adopting it. There were more printers uh, available and yeah. more and more parts were being made uh, on that. So, you know, it was, it was probably this slow adoption. And I think we're still in that adoption stage. It's, it's still... Um, probably a regular occurrence that we get somebody saying, well, we're not quite bought into additive yet. And I understand that, uh, you know, something yeah. that I always say about it was, well, don't use additive unless you have to. And the business case and the technical case makes sense because there's a lot of great manufacturing out there. And, you know, we don't want to use additive just because it's a cool new kid on the block. We want to use it where it makes sense. But I think across industry, in particular aerospace, we're really understanding that, we make very complex parts that have long lead times for forgings and castings. They have a lot of machining in them, um, thin walls, internal flow passages. So additive makes sense for a lot of these, these complex parts. And of course, in aerospace, you know, we never use alloys that are easy to machine or easy to make traditionally. Um, you know, the, the Inconels and the Haynes materials and some of these, these coppers and even high-strength aluminum. Yeah. And everything so you know we find a lot of great uses uh for it and it like i said with my, my story 20 years later it's really exciting to see where we're at 
with additive because now it's a regular occurrence for us. Almost all of our hot fire testing that we do day to day at Marshall and across the agency has an additively manufactured combustion chamber and injector and nozzle and ignition system um, in that. So, you know, I'm really excited where things are going to continue to go in the future. Yeah, I mean, that's that's also an incredible fast timeline, right? From the first hot fire test, truly, in 2010, where, yeah, it sounds like everybody was surprised that additive would actually withstand those, uh, those, those, those environments to today in 2023, where a, a really impressive amount of applications are additively manufactured and go on a space-wise system. So, Paul, can you go over the application landscape with me of today, which applications on a space flight system are being 3D printed? Right. So I work specifically liquid rocket engines, and we have mm -hmm. uh, combustion devices and turbo machinery and valves, and we've explored additive manufacturing for all of those components. Um, again, a lot of these have complex internal flow passages like a combustion chamber you have 6000 degrees fahrenheit uh, combustion gases you know, on one side of this you have cryogenic propellants on the other side of that and there's a wall you know that's a few sheets of paper thick between those um, mm -hmm. so the environments are just really, really challenging. Of course, you have you know, high vibration environments in these and all kinds of dynamics um, in there aside from just the temperatures. And of course, we have really high pressures too. So we're operating at you know, 3,000, 6,000 PSI uh, in some of these. Yeah, it's incredible. So everything is really challenging for, for components in a liquid rocket engine. Um, but again, we're, we're trying to make these components complex. There's certain performance requirements that we have to meet um, in those. And the alloys, you know, we have to use high conductivity alloys and high strength alloys um, in here. And, you know, manufacturing tolerances are really, really tight on this as we need to have seals and, you know, no gapping on this because these high pressures. So we've targeted a lot of different components, um, combustion chambers, again, where you have all these coolant channels in there, mm -hmm. were a very challenging part to make before. We'd use brazing and welding and plating, and you know we'd have scrap rates on, on these chambers. Without additive, we can go print these as a single piece, and they're fully closed out with the manifold and everything, and you, know, you can be on the test stand in a couple of weeks where traditionally it was months to do this or sometimes even years so combustion chamber is an ideal application injectors used to be made out of mm -hmm. a couple hundred pieces and now we can go print those in a couple uh pieces we've done a lot of work um with uh, valves and turbo machinery as well so rotating components and housings now one thing i'll say is we're not using just a single additive process in these is we're exploring a lot of different processes. Powder bed fusion is certainly one that we use for high complexity, but you're also mm -hmm. limited in the overall size of parts that you could build. So we've explored a lot of the directed energy deposition technologies where we can yeah. make very large parts. And now we're making parts that are meters in diameter in, in meters in height. So that's another aspect of additive 
like you said, in 10 years, you know, we've really come a long way with that. And it's pretty exciting. And I'd say in five years, it's even more exciting on the large scale because five years ago, we were printing parts that were the size, you know, fit within a shoebox. And now the printers mm-hmm. have gotten much larger on the powder bed fusion size and they've gotten gigantic on the DED side. So yeah. now we really have all these opportunities and potential manufacturing solutions that um, didn't exist. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And we also see, you know, not only within within your part of the of, of the space industry, a lot of these events, we also see private companies developing technologies in-house that are being applied to large-scale industrial 3D printing. I think Relativity Space uh, definitely uh, can be mentioned uh, in that regard. How does NASA work together with these private companies to to accelerate the development curve and to accelerate the yeah the the speed that we bring new innovation into space? NASA has a very unique role in this, and something that I'm really excited about is we get to see everything that's going on across commercial space industry. And we are engaged in helping with all these companies. And I think our Mm -hmm. unique role is the fact that we get to see this, but we get to develop a lot of the additive technologies and manufacturing technologies and make a lot of that data openly available, right? We're Mm -hmm. funded by the taxpayers. So we want to help industry accelerate on all this. So there's a lot of applications where we can sometimes take on more risk and do those developments for new materials or new design concepts and push those. And sometimes they don't always go as planned, uh, but a lot of times we've, we've had successes and then we're able to publish mm-hmm. a lot of the data and provide that to commercial space. And I think, you know, it's really been an exciting um, from from the NASA perspective, because we have had a lot of successes and new materials that are enabling for commercial space. So we're able to push their missions and increase their performance um, on that and provide the hard lessons learned too. You know, we've, like I said, we've had print failures and failures on the test stand uh, and things. And we don't want to see those failures, certainly in an, in any of our missions or commercial space missions. So providing some of those lessons and making sure that they're aware of things uh, that can bite them, you know, and, and additive and in the process on that. Um, so we work very closely. NASA has a, a process, uh, commercial uh, space act agreements, where a lot of these companies mm-hmm. will fund us to do consulting for them. And it's a great partnership. Like so we get to see what they're doing. They get a lot of data from us um, on that. And I think overall, we want to see more launches, you know, more opportunities for us to fly our science missions and payloads and astronauts uh, on that so that we can you know, really accelerate exploration um, even more. And I think it's a, it's a good uh, opportunity and a good deal for the government as well, because the cost should come down overall in these launches. And then that frees up some of our budget to go do some of these uh, deep space missions and, and other you know missions that we, we may not have funding for just by doing the launches alone. 
Yeah, and and we'll talk about that in a second because I'm very curious to to hear your thoughts on on the future of space and also the role that additive may play in it. But you also mentioned ultimately that education is a huge part of what you do and of what NASA does on a daily basis. And if we look at additive, and unfortunately, if we look at really any technology out there right now, there's a lot of what I would call misinformation today, where either additive is perceived as a plug-and-play technology or where certain overpromises are being made when it comes to technology and the implementation. How do you approach the education of, of boots-on-the-ground engineers to make sure that the technology is being implemented in the right way? Yeah, this is a, a perfect topic to talk about, right? Because I think there's a lot of uh, really cool examples of very complex parts being made. I shouldn't even say parts, say complex shapes being made. But mm -hmm. we need to go make those parts real and put them in a rocket engine environment or put them on a, a launch vehicle you know, or on the space station. So we have to have full pedigree with these parts. And I think with additive, it's really easy to get caught up in the build process itself. Right? Go create a mm -hmm. CAD model. I go see this part printed that I've created. But that is such a small piece of the process. And you're not going to be successful if you're just focusing on that. You need to be looking at the process holistically. That how do I design for additive? Um, how do I post-process? What is the certification, the witness specimens, the microstructure? And I think something has changed with additive in the culture of organizations because it used to be just one person that was responsible for the design and then i would hand it off to my manufacturing engineer and then they hand it off to the quality engineer and then you know so on and so on so you had all these different roles with additive your designer is also your analyst they need to know a little bit about metallurgy they need to understand yeah. how the different AM processes work. They need to understand that if I have a thin wall and a thick wall, my microstructure might be different. My properties might be different. So there's a lot of these decisions that are being made, again, that look at that whole, that process holistically, end to end. And we've always emphasized that when we've uh, talked publicly. Uh, we wrote a book recently that, that really focuses on that end to end um, application of metal additive manufacturing, you know, because again, there's a lot of decisions that you make, not just in the build process, but, but more importantly in post-processing. And I can't tell you how many parts that we have built successfully and we go to post-process them and we can't get the powder out of those parts, or we yep. need to machine some interfaces and we bring it to the machinist and he scratches his head saying, I don't know how to machine this thing because I don't know how to hold this part. You know, it's so complex. Mm -hmm. There's no way to hold this. Or I don't have a good datum um, on this. Or inspections are another example is we have made parts that are too complex that I give to my non-destructive uh, evaluation or my NDE engineer. And they're like, I, I don't know how to inspect this part, right? There's so many features in here. I can't tell you if your microstructure is good. I can't tell you exactly the defects. Um, in here. So we need to consider that end-to-end -end process on that. And I think, you know, we all need to be cognizant of when we're providing data to, you know, to 
make sure that 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 data is accurate. And I think that's certainly a role that that NASA takes to heart is when we publish something, we want to make sure that we have you know the traceability with that data set and the properties have been checked over and over again. And I know the certification for the powder and the parameter that it was built with, you know, and all the post-processing steps on that. So really place, placing emphasis on that that process. Um, you know, and we're getting there. I think that um, you know, there's more realization of it. I'm seeing a lot better questions being asked. You know, instead of oh, how do I go build this part? You know, now we're hearing, mm -hmm. well, how do I go machine this part after I've I've built it? And NASA has taken on a lot of the roles in education. So we provide a lot of public data, like I mentioned. Uh, we published an extensive textbook on this. We published a lot of journal articles and papers and, and conference papers, but probably a, a huge role that NASA has taken on is the certification of additive manufacturing for human spaceflight. Is we put together a specification for here's how you go certify parts. And, mm -hmm. you know, if, if you're reading through it, it may sound like typical NASA jargon requirements. You <laughs> thou shall do this, this and this. But with each one of those comes experience. So we mm -hmm. put those in there because we have experienced failures or we have seen issues during the process that you need to watch out for. Um, so I think that's that's where we're trying to educate people is the proper yep. use and the intentional use of additive and not just going about it, it blindly, making sure that you lay out your entire process end to end and iterate on that, you know, so that it's well integrated together and, you know, that you will be successful at that point. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's, it's worth repeating what you just said, which is, Understanding the whole process chain of additive manufacturing is truly key to any role within the additive manufacturing industry, whether you are in space or you are in medical. And that is understanding also the process parameters that go into the printing of a part from laser speed to laser intensity to what a hatch distance is to what contours are, because all of that also has an impact on you design and the same with post-processing, right? Understanding when support structures are beneficial, even though you can print support free, sometimes you may want to add some to, to get the heat out and get some stresses out of, out of the parts. I recently got to teach a short class at, at a new MIT program for aerospace industry or aerospace engineers uh, on additive. And, you know, I thought it was super interesting because we brought a bunch of failed parts. And we let the, the, the engineers and the students touch these failed builds and give them an understanding of what all can go wrong with additive manufacturing as well, right? And I want to ask you a question, which is, what is the, the biggest failure that you guys had with, with additive manufacturing? And what did you learn from it? There's a lot, <laughs> certainly a lot of process failures that, that we have seen, failed builds in that. But one that we have publicized recently is we blew up an engine on the test stand. Mm -hmm. And certainly that's not something that was planned for. Uh, the goal of this project was to test GRCOP 42 laser powder bed fusion. And we were trying to meet a minimum of 50 starts on these combustion chambers. 
Uh, we had mm-hmm. tested lots of chambers prior to this. So we actually tested one chamber and we met 51 starts on it. We said, that's great. Let's go test a second chamber that was built within the same build, built four, four chambers on this build plate. And mm-hmm. we had tested this chamber and we got eight or nine starts out of it. And on that next start, 10 seconds into the test, the chamber completely separated. So you see this whole thing engulfed in, in flames. And we're all shocked at this point wow. um, watching this. And after the dust settled, said, okay, let's dig in. Let's understand this. You know, we met the original goals of this program, but now here's an opportunity to really develop some lessons learned. And I think it's important mm-hmm. to, to make some of these public, you know, like your class of, of failed parts that you, that you brought to MIT. So with yep. this one, when we dug in, you know, is actually, it went back to a build interruption, a witness line. And how many times before this have I seen witness lines and accepted them and said, yep, they're fine. Well, in our NASA spec, we actually talk about go test for witness lines. So now I'm looking back and saying, okay, you've got my attention, (laughs) right? I saw this big ball of fire in this combustion chamber that split in half. Uh, So as we dug into this, you know, we realized that we had several witness lines in this part. And overall, the part actually had a little bit higher porosity than what we were typically used to in it. Now, in the early days mm-hmm. of additive, we probably would have accepted 1% porosity or so. But as the processes have gotten better, you know, we don't yeah. accept that level of porosity. Well, this one had 1% to 2% porosity, but that porosity tended to congregate around these build interruptions, that witness line. So after this thermal fatiguing of this part, it just let loose in that area. Now we went back and we actually recreated a bunch of those witness lines and tested those. Um, and some of them were the powder overflow. One was a power failure, common things that we see all the time on that. Mm-hmm. And we determined that you, you, with a proper restart procedure, you can be successful uh, with those witness lines. Uh, but again, you have to go through and you have to generate that data and understand that. And this chamber failure, again, was kind of a unique um, situation. You know, we looked at all the build records of this and there was nothing that indicated that any of the parameters or anything were bad uh, on that. But you know, some of our suspicion might be, well, over the course of the build, the porosity started to increase a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, maybe the, the cover lens started to, to get a little bit dirty or, you know, the parameters changed ever so slightly. Again, the machine was tracking everything and everything was green and said, no issues here. But I think those are the things that we understand about the process sensitivity um, in this. And again, it emphasizes why we put certain requirements and things to meet in our NASA uh, spec on that. So, you know, we can share some of those images and everything of this. And there's a presentation um, out there, but that is one that got our attention um, and things that we've talked about, but now that is all in our brains and, you know, concreted there that, that we will always remember that and know why we do these, these certain specs and traceability yeah. uh, and, and 
checking witness samples and things throughout the process. Yeah, perfect example of, of also truly understanding the process in depth and understanding why witness lines occur, uh, how to prevent them or how to manage them if they occur like a power failure, right? There is a backup battery power that you can implement into your manufacturing facility or run a certain process procedure like you mentioned to ensure that there is no increased porosity in those witness lines. But we need those failures, like you mentioned, in order to to get there and to to advance the the, the technology. Now, you also mentioned that you guys are working on advancing the technology and bringing larger into the into the spectrum new materials into the spectrum now i'm curious what does the future of additive manufacturing in space look like what can we expect to happen now in the next five years moving forward i think we're still at the infancy of additive and i think you had a really you know good quote from earlier we said you know, we really accelerated this in 10 years. I don't think that people realize that a lot of times when technologies are developed, that it probably took 30 years or so to, to get there. So Additive has really yeah. accelerated. And again, we're in a unique position with NASA that we are looking at all of the different additive processes. And we're trying to explore all these different types of materials and make all that data public. So for instance, NASA is doing a large database where we have about 55 different alloys that we're characterizing, optimizing the heat treatment and doing mechanical testing. And we're making all that data public to industry um, for use. So I think mm -hmm. trying to get data out there is one thing that will help accelerate the adoption um, of it. Educating, you know, there, there's definitely a human resources aspect to this whole thing, right? People are still yeah. driving the process. So education is critical in adoption of additive and training people properly. And I think that's something that we really need to push in the next several years. But from a technology perspective, it's really fascinating to watch the size, the physical size you know, of additive grow that we're making these parts that are 10 feet tall, you know, three meters in, in height and several meters and, you know, eight, nine feet in diameter uh, on that, yeah, some incredible. parts that are even, even bigger. So that's really exciting. But I think one thing that I am probably the most excited about is the opportunity for new materials is mm -hmm. additive for the most part, we've been using materials that are decades old. Uh, we have... <laughs> True. History of those materials. We're comfortable with those materials. We've been using a lot of these nickel-based super alloys for many decades. So we said, okay, we're going to go adopt those for additive. But now yeah. we're finding that we're able to make unique copper alloys and some of these oxide dispersion strength and alloys and alloys for like hydrogen uh, rich environments and high pressure oxygen environments that you couldn't make before. You can make new chemistries and you can do this very quickly. So typically it would be years to uh, develop a chemistry and keep modifying it and going through all the castings and the forgings. Well, now we can go create chemistries with um, models, you know, all, all the mm -hmm. simulations now and come up with a, a box, you know, a chemistry that we're, we think is definitely going to work in additive and, go atomize the powder in a few weeks and have it in a machine a few weeks later. 
So you can really yeah. accelerate the creation of these new uh, alloys. So I'm certainly excited for that. But I think, you know, from a, a bigger perspective as well, at NASA, we're working additive, not just for launch vehicles, but beyond. Uh, there's mm -hmm. a lot of activities where we're looking at additive manufacturing to make lunar habitats from the lunar regolith. So to me, if that's not inspiring, I don't know what it is that we can yeah. do ground-based additive manufacturing, but now we can do in-space additive manufacturing and go print habitats for people to establish a permanent presence on the moon and eventually on Mars. Now, that is probably not going to happen in five years, but we are setting up the development of that and proving a lot of that out on the ground to eventually be able to do that and, you know, not the too far distance uh, future. Yeah, I mean, that's a incredible vision. And, you know, I mean, if you walk around Austin here, which is where I'm based, there is already a few 3D printed houses, I believe by the company Icom Builds, who uh, also has uh, some visions for for space exploration and colonization. And seeing those those houses is quite impressive. Right? And they take a very similar approach as well by, you know, not taking conventional materials, not taking conventional designs, but you know, having custom formulated concrete that is formulated on site based on on site humidity and temperature requirements redesigning the whole structure to a make it more energy efficient but also to allow the house to to adjust to the environment around it and implement trees and other foliage into the design and as you mentioned in the metal additive manufacturing even also polymer additive manufacturing space you know it's very interesting to see those new alloys being developed that are now truly developed for the technology because right now If I also listen to what you said earlier, we're now leveraging the design benefits of additive manufacturing, but we're not really leveraging the material benefits of additive manufacturing yet. And I'm very excited as well to see what the combination of, of true additive design and of designed materials together with those new processes will, will come up with. Let me ask you one more question, and that is, where would space be today without additive? Would we be in a similar situation where we would launch on a regular basis, where we would talk about space exploration and building habitats on the moon? I think that, that space has definitely accelerated because of additive. Now, there's still lots and lots of traditional manufacturing that's being used. But I think one, one major advantage we're finding with additive is we can get to prototypes so much quicker. So I can go build parts and have them on a test stand in the matter of a couple weeks. So we can go through this design, fail, fix cycle very quickly with additive and try to optimize the system very quickly. Um, you know, and we're doing it at a pace that we've never seen before. Now, additive may not be the final uh, technology that I use for production. Um, but again, in that early testing, We're, we're using it. And, and in many cases, we're using it in production as well. So I think you're seeing a lot of companies adopt that. So faster time to market um, with that. And again, there are a lot of space companies that are, that are adopting 
attitude because it's accessible now. So previously, if you're going to go make a combustion chamber, an injector, you would have to have specialty processes and the skills that go with that and all the tooling, which could be millions of, of dollars in investment to make these combustion mm -hmm. chambers and injectors. And there was only a handful of companies that could do that where now it's accessible. So a lot of companies can do that. And I think the other thing that, that's really neat that I mentioned earlier too is a lot of these university rocket teams that have access to additive. So now we're training this workforce on how to go design and build and test rocket engines in universities that didn't have opportunities that before. So now you have a workforce you're coming out of school that is more knowledgeable and can hit the ground running faster. And I believe all that is because of, of additive manufacturing, you know, and then like I mentioned earlier too, just seeing the use of additive, um, you know, whether it be for houses, like you mentioned, uh, people have their own plastic printers at home. Um, so seeing that, you know, I think just helps inspire people as well for how else can I use this? Um, you know, not just for making toys and broken parts at home, but, but flying them in rockets and putting them on space stations and using additive on the moon and other planets. So, yeah, you know, we're going to continue to just see how, accelerates and like i said there's a, a there's a human aspect to all this that people are going to have more and more creative ideas and how we're using additive and new materials and, and all that's exciting uh to me because like i said we're, we're still at the infancy of this and i think it's only going to grow from here yeah exactly i mean you know additive was developed in the 80s it wasn't really matured until the early 2000s, I would even say, for prototyping. And it found its way into production in the 2010s, as you also mentioned, especially in space. And, you know, every technology needs its ambassadors. And you, as well as NASA and the space industry as a whole, I would say are ambassadors for, for the additive manufacturing technology and are a role model for other industries to to venture forward and and allow additive manufacturing to reshape their applications and their their visions really for for the future of their their product portfolios. And yeah, I want to thank you, Paul, for marching forward and and showing other industries, but also folks within the additive manufacturing industry where the technology can go. And that we are just at the beginning also means that you know we have a lot of incredible innovation still ahead of us. So I'm very excited for that. And I also want to thank you, of course, for being on Additive Snack and sharing your experience, but also your vision with us. Thank you so much for having me and absolutely hope to keep inspiring and seeing others make methodical and intentional use of additive manufacturing and can't wait to see where it goes in the future. This was the first episode in our four-part AM Space Race series on Additive Snack. As we just heard, this is just the beginning of the impact additive manufacturing is having on the space industry. We're still learning how to leverage the full potential of the technology, how to break out of the conventional materials and design restrictions, and to also get closer to the current limitations, including an exploded thrust chamber that taught us a lot about witness lines. 
I'd like to thank Paul for taking the time to speak with us today. And I hope that his insights have given you a good overview of the space industry. But just like this is the beginning of AM in Space, this is also just the beginning of our series. Next week, you'll hear from Tim Berry, head of manufacturing and supply chain at space company Launcher. We hope you can join us again as we delve deeper into this exciting series on new space and the impact additive manufacturing has had on its incredible expansion. Until then, I'm Fabian Alefeld, and you've been listening to Additive Snack by EOS, leaders in industrial additive manufacturing solutions. A big thank you for this episode goes out to Kristen War, Shannon Bauch, and Jenna Phillips, as well as the Brafton team.